Well, our scripture reading this morning, we are back uh, in the book of Esther. So we've got a couple more weeks in the book of Esther, uh, and you'll find that text actually printed in your bulletin. We're looking at Esther chapter 8 and part of chapter 9 this morning. Um, But the passage, the passage that we're going to look at this morning contains an incident that's the type of incident that honestly some people would use as a reason to reject Christianity. Uh, As you'll see in a second, in verse 11, we're going to read, the Jewish people are given permission to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. Uh, And so what people will say is, see, this God of the Bible is no different than the God that the hijackers on 9-11 worshipped. He's he's a vengeful God. It's no different from the holy war that Al-Qaeda is carrying out in the Middle East today. Now, the Old Testament's no different from that. Uh, You Christians are all upset about terrorists killing innocent women and children, and yet your God tells his people to do exactly the same sort of thing. Or they might say something along the lines of, this is just the natural result of any kind of exclusivist religion. You think your way is right, you think your way is the only way, and so you wind up arguing with and getting angry with and eventually killing anybody who disagrees with you, who doesn't embrace your version of the truth. Or the objection might be more along these lines. Um, I understand the God of love, but I don't really understand a God of judgment. I don't understand why he would send anyone to hell. And I certainly don't understand why he would send me to hell just because I don't think about religious truth the same way another person thinks about religious truth. So that's where we're going this morning. I thought something a little light, a little easy. (laughs) Nothing too hard this morning. Um, But all right, we're going to get to all that. Here's where we are. Let me, if, if you, if you, haven't been with us for a while. Here's where we are in the book of Esther. This is all going to tie together in a minute. Uh, Jewish people are in Babylon. They've been taken there into captivity. Many of them have actually gone back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, but some of them have stayed behind. One of them, Queen Esther, uh, or excuse me, Esther becomes queen uh, to King Ahasuerus, and she is there in, in the royal palace. Her cousin, Mordecai, gets into a bit of a jam. The king's right-hand man, whose name is Haman, um, he's been promoted to this position of second in the land, and everybody's supposed to bow down to him. Mordecai refuses to do this. He won't bow down to Haman uh, because Haman is connected. He's a descendant of uh, people who had the Amalekites, or excuse me, the Agites, who had... um, attacked God's people when they were leaving Egypt for the promised land. And so Haman's this distant descendant. Mordecai won't bow down to him. Haman flies into a rage. He wants to have Mordecai killed. He wants to have all the Jews killed in all the provinces, basically in the whole world. And so Mordecai pleads with Esther and says, you've got to go in and talk to the king, and you've got to save us. And so Esther goes in, and she talks to the king, she talks to the king uh, Ahusuerus, and she exposes Haman and his plot. And Haman's hung. 
All right. Esther's given all Haman's possessions. Mordecai is promoted to second in the land. But there's still a problem. Uh, see, Haman had had this decree issued in the name of the king that all the Jews were to be killed on this certain day. And that decree is still hanging there. Nothing's been done about it. So God's people are still very much at risk. So that's where we are, okay? That's where we are in the book of Esther. So Esther chapter 8, again, you can find this in your bulletin. I'm going to start in verse 1. This is God's word. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. All right, so things are going in a good direction. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? <clears throat> then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned, and at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the twenty-third day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, a hundred and twenty-seven provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. 
the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And also killed Parshendatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adaliah and Eridatha and Parmashtha and Arasai and Ardai and Vyasatha. Y'all can check me on that if you want to. Probably close. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day, and made that a day of feasting and gladness. And pray for us. <clears throat> Father, um, this is your word, and there are parts of your word that are more difficult for us to, to get our hands around than others. So I pray for your enablement this morning that you would help me to, to speak clearly and truthfully, and that you would... Uh, open our ears and our minds and our hearts to the truth of your gospel. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, Esther pleads for her people. And, and, and the king basically says here, look, I've already given you Haman and, and I've had him hung. And I can't really revoke the decree that's already been issued in my name because when a decree is issued in the name of the king, you can't take it back. Uh, it's, it's just out there. But, but here's what I'm going to do for you. You write a decree, uh, sign it with my name and seal it with my ring, and make it say whatever you need it to say. I just can't undo the first one. But you write whatever you need to write to take care of your people. So 
Mordecai has a decree written that so that the Jews will be able to protect their lives. Again, as the text says, by destroying, killing, and annihilating all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. And then what does the text tell us? Uh, Then the Jews defeated all their enemies with a stroke of the sword, with slaughter and with destruction, and did as they pleased with those who hated them. So what? All right, what is... What do we gain from this? What do, we, what do we learn from this passage? Well, the first thing I want you to see that this passage shows us is actually this. God's faithfulness to his promises and to his people. God's faithfulness to his promises and to his people. Now, you've you got to go back in, in the Old Testament a little bit to think about this. In Genesis 12, God had promised Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. He had promised God, that Abraham and all his descendants, uh, he would be a God to Abraham and to them. Now think about that. What would happen to that promise if uh, all of the Jewish people were suddenly wiped out? They no longer existed as Haman hoped. And think about Exodus 17. Uh, After the Amalekites attacked, or the Agites attacked Egypt, Israel on the way out of Egypt, God promised to wipe them out. He promised to to destroy them eventually. But now here comes Haman, one of their descendants, and he's on the verge of having God's people annihilated. And so God, again, remembers his promise and preserves his people. There's a third reason God's preservation of his people here is important. Uh, Because if the Jews are destroyed... The ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham never comes about. The seed, if you think back to Galatians when we studied Galatians, the seed that God has promised never shows up if the Jewish people are destroyed because if the Jewish people are destroyed, there's no descendant of King David. There's no Jesus. There's no Redeemer. If Haman's plan succeeds, then God's plan to redeem his people fails and is done away with. So you see God's commitment to his people, to preserve his people. Now, how does that help today? I want to transition to the New Testament a little bit and think about a promise that Jesus makes in the New Testament. Uh, In John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus promises that that if if you're his child, if you're one of his sheep, then no one will be able to snatch you from his hand. And Jesus, the Son of God, is faithful to his promises and faithful to his people. And you know, that's that's incredibly helpful when you're struggling. When you're struggling with where you are in life, when you're struggling with doubts, when you're struggling with questions, when when your sin is weighing you down, when the circumstances of life feel like they're dragging you away from God, is at those points, as a Christian, you have to remember, now wait a minute, I didn't somehow get myself saved. Jesus saved me and he promises to preserve me and that nothing can snatch me from his hand and his hand is infinitely more powerful than my hand. So I have to trust his promises and rest 
in him. Secondly, Jesus says that his sheep will never perish. Think about that much. I've got a, a friend whose funeral I'm, I'm going to this week in Boone, someone who's been battling cancer for about 15 years, or cancer for, for about five or six years and other diseases for about 15 years. And, you know, that's an incredibly helpful promise and reminder that as believers, we don't have to fear death any longer. That we have this eternal home, this eternal hope, that Jesus promises to give you eternal life. And he's faithful to his promises and he's faithful to his people. Now, you might be saying at this point, okay, um, I'm not entirely sure what this has to do with Esther, but okay, uh, I, I can see how God's promises to his people would be encouraging, that would be helpful for you to know that, that God's going to keep you, that God preserves his people, that Jesus has secured eternal life, and that's sure and that's certain. And, and, and yeah, that, that's helpful. Or, or you might be sitting here saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm actually not a Christian, but I can see how a Christian might derive comfort from knowing these things that you say. I understand that. Uh, I even understand the Jews being allowed to defend themselves here. I can, okay, I can go along with that. But I don't get the, the killing women and children part. I don't, I don't understand what's happening there. That seems pretty barbaric to me. What, what's going on? I don't get these, these, these holy wars is what they look like to me that are in the Old Testament. I'm not going to tell you anything else. Let's go. <laughs> all right. Uh, first of all, Christians need to be honest and need to acknowledge that what Mordecai was authorizing here really was a form of holy war. Uh, it, it matches up with what Samuel tells Saul back in 1 Samuel. Listen to this text, and you can see the, <clears throat> the similarities. Thus said the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Alright? The donkeys aren't even, you know, they're, they're in trouble too. And, and this isn't just this, this isolated incident. Uh, the, the book of Joshua describes how God's people conquered the promised land of Canaan and it's all about holy war as God fights for his people. Deuteronomy 20 uh, God's preparing his people for battle and he tells them this of the cities of these people which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive but shall utterly destroy them otherwise they will teach you to do all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods and you will sin against the Lord your God why? It's a big question here, right? Why? Why would, would God command the destruction even of non-combatants, of, of innocent women and children? The hard answer is this. From the perspective of the Bible, the men and even the women and the children of the land of Canaan were not innocent. 
They were a part of a, a wicked culture that God had decided in His righteous judgment. Remember the psalm that we used to praise Him, even speak of Him, spoke of Him being the judge. Uh, and He has decided to exercise His righteous judgment against them. Uh, Genesis 15.6 even tells us that one of the reasons the Israelites had to wait so long to begin the conquest uh, is this. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. In other words, it's not time to judge them yet. Things haven't gotten bad enough yet. But it's coming. The time's coming. See, the, the Old Testament is this tangible picture for us. This, the Old Testament death and destruction that we all... all right, you kind of cringe at it, right? We all kind of cringe at it a little bit, but it's a tangible picture of what the New Testament teaches in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And the New Testament doesn't have this holy warfare going on anymore, but it speaks of this final judgment when everyone who doesn't follow Jesus, men who don't follow Jesus, women who don't follow Jesus, Children who don't follow Jesus uh, are cast into what the New Testament describes as this lake of fire. And so the holy wars of the Old Testament uh, are only a taste, only a picture of the wrath of God that is still coming, that's yet to come. Now, uh, at this point you may be saying, all right, that's it. That's, that's what I thought you were saying, and that's my problem with Christianity. That's just, that's just ridiculous. That's, that's, that's barbaric. I don't understand a God of judgment, and I certainly don't understand a God who would send people to hell. Now, let me, let me say a couple of things in response to that. First of all, um, you know, this is a hard subject. These are difficult things to think about. So let's say, let's think about this for a second. Um, At the end of the day, you might not want God to judge you. All right. You might not want God to judge you, but you really do want a God who judges. You really do want that. Um, Listen to what, what Bill Hybels wrote. He said, you say you can't conceive of a God who would ever punish anyone. That wouldn't be loving. But you have to understand God's justice. If I backed into the door of your new car out in the parking lot and we went to court and the judge said, that's no problem, Bill didn't really mean it, you'd be up in arms. You'd want justice. If you went to a Cubs game in Sutcliffe, was a picture for the Cubs a long time ago, threw a strike down the middle of the plate and the ump said, ball four, and walked in a run, you'd be out there killing the ump because you want justice. You hear that and say, well, I guess maybe you're right. I wouldn't want a God who wasn't just. But before you say rah, rah for a just God, let me tell you some of the implications. That means he meets out, that means he hands out justice for you. Not just for other people who have wronged you, but justice for you. Another author put it this way, how does a good God forgive bad people without compromising himself? Does he just play fast and loose with the facts? 
Oh, never mind. Boys will be boys. Try telling that to a survivor of the Cambodian killing fields or to someone who lost an entire family in the Holocaust. No. To be truly good, one has to be outraged by evil and implacably hostile to injustice. In other words, you can't be good. God can't be good if he's not outraged by evil and hostile towards injustice. In other words, you really don't want God to look the other way when an injustice is done. If I steal your car and and beat up your kids, uh, you, you, you really want there to be justice for that. You want justice done, especially if it's against you or somebody you care about. But if you admit that, you have to realize that this same God is going to hand out justice to you as well. And your record, like my record, is a long way from being spotless as we stand before this just God. See, what what the Bible teaches is that all of us Every one of us have acted wrongly toward God. We've acted wrongly toward our neighbor. And justice demands that we be punished for that. There are consequences for not loving God and for not loving our neighbor. Uh, In fact, we have acted wrongly toward and against an infinitely holy God who is infinitely good. And that means that the punishment must be be an infinite, eternal punishment for wronging this infinitely holy God. You really do want a just God. A God who wasn't just would be a monstrosity. Can you imagine that? But if he acts justly, he's going to act justly toward you as well. And so... The judgment here in Esther that God brings down on the Persians, the the judgment you see exercised throughout the Old Testament, is perfectly just. In fact, from the perspective of the Bible, he would be perfectly just to judge any one of us uh, at any moment for a trap door to to open underneath us and us fall into hell. He would be perfectly just to do that. And these Old Testament stories of God destroying those who are the enemies of his people are simply a preview for us of the final judgment that God will exercise against those who refuse to bow the knee to him. Now, let me me also, you may say, well, I don't know, I'm still a little uncomfortable with that. What about this whole God sending people to hell thing? Let me me take a, a stab at that, and this is from... Uh, from C.S. Lewis and from Tim Keller as well. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. And in The Great Divorce, there's this busload of people from hell who have arrived at the doorstep of heaven and they're being pleaded with, leave your sin behind, leave hell behind, come, come to heaven, but they won't do it. They're not able to leave their sin behind. And this is what Lewis writes. <clears throat> he says, hell begins with a grumbling mood always complaining, always blaming others, but you are distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer stop it. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell, 
In each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. In each of us there is something growing that will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. And then Keller writes this. The people in hell are miserable, but Lewis shows us why. We see raging like unchecked flames their pride, their paranoia, their self-pity, their certainty that everyone else is wrong, that everyone else is an idiot. All their humility is gone, and thus so is their sanity. They are utterly, finally locked in a prison of their own self-centeredness, and their pride progressively expands into a bigger and bigger mushroom cloud. They continue to go to pieces forever, blaming everyone but themselves. If I twisted their arm, it's what they wanted. It's what they sought after. Keller writes, hell is a freely chosen identity apart from God going on forever. Hell is a freely chosen identity that you've built apart from building your identity on God that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. And if you think about that, uh, that, that fits with what Romans 1 says as it talks about God giving people over to their desires. That's how he um, exercises his wrath, by giving you over to the things, the non-God things that you so desperately crave, and that's his wrath poured out on you the logical consequences of those desires. C.S. Lewis says, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Okay? Your will be done. And hell is that going on forever and ever and ever. Now you might say, those are nice little arguments. Um, but I still don't like this idea of a God of judgment. I just don't like to think of God like that. I have a problem with a judging God. Let me ask you this. Why don't you have a problem with a forgiving God? Why don't you have a problem with a forgiving God? Other cultures have a problem with a forgiving God, and they don't have a problem with a judging God. Did you ever consider that maybe your objection to God's judgment is just a vibe that you've picked up from the culture around you. Does that make it true? Does that make it real? Just because you've chosen that you like to think uh, about God in that way? Well, what about today? Alright, so the church still be involved in this holy warfare? Yes and no. Yes and no. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm not going to read it now because we've read a lot, but Ephesians chapter 6. Go back and read Ephesians chapter 6 later today. The preview of the final judgment is over. If you think about the Old Testament like that, this preview of final judgment is over. And on this side of the cross, we don't struggle so much with physical enemies as we struggle against spiritual enemies Principalities using spiritual weapons. We're not called to go out and point guns at people and tell them to convert or die. Uh, one commentator put it this way, we live in the era of grace 
in which we fight with spiritual weapons to bring the gospel to the nation, defeating God's enemies by seeing them graciously transformed to his friends. That we want to see people become no longer the enemies of God, but through the power of the gospel, see them actually become the very friends of God. And in the Old Testament, at one time, the literal destruction of God's enemies was called for in order to preserve uh, the Messiah until it was time for him to come. But now that Christ has come, we are called to love our enemies as Christ has loved us when we were his enemies. And that's kind of the, the interesting thing in all this. See, that the Israelites didn't get to be God's people in the first place because they were so good. Uh, Deuteronomy 9, God actually tells the Israelites, look, it's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of your integrity that I'm giving you this land. In fact, you're a stiff-necked people. And so God's provision for them was simply because of his grace. And that's true for us today as well. Uh, We don't become one of God's people. We don't inherit eternal life because we're so good or moral or have our acts together. We become one of God's people by grace. God would be perfectly just in judging every one of us. But in His grace, He's made a way for our rebellion to be forgiven. In the cross of Christ, God sends His only Son to be crucified in our place. On the cross, Jesus gets the curse of holy war. Holy war is declared on Jesus in a sense so that it doesn't have to be declared on us. It makes possible for God to forgive us and still to remain a just and a righteous God. And in the gospel, God offers to remove that curse of holy war from you. If you'll put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you refuse that offer, the curse, the curse of judgment, continues to hang over your head. There's, a, there's an interesting article uh, in this past month on the RUF, Reform University Fellowship, it's our denomination's campus ministry, that one of the, uh, the interns wrote this article, and it's about uh, Muhammad Ali. And most of you know who Muhammad Ali was, one of the, the greatest fighters who ever lived. Uh, and if you know much about him, you know that that really was his driving passion, that really was his identity, was to be the greatest. That's what he was known as. I'm the greatest. And he had to be the greatest. That was his identity. That was his freely chosen identity. And how did we describe hell? A freely chosen identity apart from God going on forever. And think about Ali for a minute and what he built his life on what his freely chosen identity really was. Uh, Back in the 60s, Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali were the big names in boxing. And they hadn't fought yet, but they were riding somewhere in a car together. And Joe Frazier began to talk a little good-natured smack talk. And he was talking about their fight, and he joked that he was going to beat Muhammad Ali. And Ali didn't think it was funny. Uh, in fact, he said that after that car ride, we never looked eye to eye. He was floored that anybody actually thought they could beat him. How dare you think that? Because he was the greatest. 
you know, beat the greatest. Well, when they actually fought for the first time, guess who won? These boxing historians. Joe Frazier won the first fight with Muhammad Ali, and he was, he was shattered. He was devastated. And so his life became getting back in the ring to beat Joe Frazier. Eventually, he did get back in the ring, and he did beat Joe Frazier, but there was one small problem. Joe Frazier had lost the title because before that fight, he had fought George Foreman, George Foreman Grill. All right, this is back when he was really huge in a strong way. Um, he, had lost, he had lost to George Foreman, and so now George Foreman was the heavyweight champion of the world, and so Muhammad Ali has to fight George Foreman in what was known as the Rumble in the Jungle, which is worth YouTubing that fight uh, to see the rope-a-dope. I know I'm getting off track here, but anyway. Uh, and so he fights George Foreman. He beats George Foreman, and now he's, he's, you know, he's the heavyweight champion of the world again. He's beaten Joe Frazier. He's beaten George Foreman. He's the champ again. Uh, he would defend his title three more times, and then in 1975 he decides to retire. And he's at the press conference announcing his retirement, and one of the reporters says, what about Joe Frazier? And Ali says, Joe Frazier, I'm not going to do my Muhammad Ali with conversation, but Joe <laughs> Frazier, I want to beat him bad. I want to beat, I want him bad. Now, what was going on there? It's like he suddenly realized, wait a minute, it's one-to-one still. And there may be some doubt in people's minds about who the greatest really is. And so he fought Joe Frazier again in the Thrilla in Manila. Uh, and he defeated Joe Frazier. He won again. He fought ten more times after that. And then in 1978, and this is from my childhood, this is kind of the Muhammad Ali I remember, which is his, his washed up point. He, he fights Leon Spinks. And, and this is what somebody writes. In February of 1978, he lost his title to Leon Spinks, a novice professional. Ali was in torment. The night after the fight, he was running down the street at 2 a.m. yelling, Gotta get my title back. Gotta get my title back. You see how he describes him there? He was in torment. Which is the same way the Bible describes people who are in hell. Well, what is Ali's 70 now? He's been ravished by Parkinson's, the, the effects of years in the ring. What does Ali think looking back at his life? This is what he says. I conquered the world, and it didn't bring me true happiness. Every day is a judgment for me. I conquered the world, and it didn't bring me true happiness. Every day is a judgment for me. If you build your identity on anything other than God, you'll never catch the happiness that you're chasing after. And one day, every day, will become a judgment for you. And it will go on and on and on and on. Forever. And the only way out, God graciously makes a way out, is through a person, is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Father, these are um, these are weighty things to talk and to think about. Uh, scary things to talk and to think about. Father, I pray that you'd help us to to think about them rightly. To think about your holiness and justice and even wrath in a right and proper way. Uh, and I do pray that you would see that you've made provision, that you've made a way for us through Jesus. And I pray that you'd cause us to run to him and find shelter and rest in him. And I pray it in his name. Amen.